0: Um, the barrio assemblies and these like you know grassroots neighborhood organizations a lot of these were sponsored by the church
1: what does it mean to say that the christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there um you're always uh being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects
0: welcome to the magnificast a podcast about christianity and leftist politics i'm your big brother super fan and co-host Matt Bernico,
2: <laughs> and uh, I am your floater for the summer, and co-host Dean Deloff.
0: Grab a life vest, Dean. <laughs> uh, floaters, go home. We're going to talk about imperialism in this episode. We're going to talk about imperialism and coups and uh, the rhetoric that Christians have developed around imperialism. But before we do, a new season of Big Brother just started. <laughs> but first, <laughs> hashtag but first, uh, new season of Big Brother just started, and we got to talk about it, Dean um american big brother united states big brother it's always contentious it's it's not as good as canadian big brother we all know this who are your faves uh who do you want to see win all right dang yeah this is a content that
2: i'm sure appeals to our entire pool of listeners but uh i'm here for it (laughs) this is our podcast and guess what you're listening to it um so you're just gonna have to deal with it i think uh all right my favorite right now is a guy named michael he rules he's a lawyer um He seems very kind uh, and also very smart. And that's what you want in a good Big Brother fave.
0: I agree. Michael's my fave. Um, He's also my wife's fave. He's on my fantasy Big Brother team, which is great. Um, Great for me. The thing about Michael that's good is that um, he got singled out really quick at the very beginning because he was a super fan. (laughs) But then he Mm -hmm. won the power of veto. And then um, he did pretty well in this competition that they did on Thursday. So things are looking good. I like Michael a lot. I also like, um, uh, there's a guy named Monty who's really great. And um, there's a football (laughs) coach who I don't like, but I kind of am secretly rooting for And his name is Pooch. And uh, listen, I think that they're going to go pretty far in the game.
2: I think you're probably right. You know, all right. If you've never watched Big Brother, um, you are missing out. That's what I'm going to say. And we are going to get to imperialism for sure in a minute. Uh, But one, one great thing about Big Brother is it is an incredible microcosm of everything that is happening in the country where that particular version of Big Brother happens to be playing and uh <laughs> it's amazing to watch specifically a season of big brother u.s and a season of big brother canada man uh just a yeah. just a great reflection of two societies and what they expect out of their reality tv um it's a really wild summer right now in particular <laughs> in u.s big brother um in some ways i don't particularly like but uh you know what if you're gonna watch one reality show and and if you need <laughs> if you need to commit to three hours of tv a week right now in your life, uh, let it be Big Brother. You can interact with us on Twitter. <laughs> we'll get pumped about it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. The uh, U.S. Big Brother is... <laughs> you're right. They are, they do reflect what's going on in, in either country. Um, Canadian Big Brother, it's always got, like, you know, a, a handful of sort of, like, queer and, like, non-gender conforming people on it and uh, indigenous people, and it's very interesting for those reasons. Um, and then U.S. Big Brother is, like... <laughs> a train wreck (laughs) an absolute train wreck in every way (laughs) they pick like lots of like social media influencers uh who who have you know some redeeming qualities but not very many
2: yeah it's a bit of a mess um it's a mess but i do love it um i don't you know the reason i got into big brother was because of uh my wife who was my girlfriend at the time she was really into it and i was like too good for reality tv and i said i'm never gonna watch this show I'm sure the show is bad because reality TV is bad. I was a good like Christian dropping out of society kind of guy. Uh, and by good, I mean extremely annoying. And yeah. uh, she was like, "I don't care. I'm going to watch the show because I love it." And so eventually, I was like, "All right, whatever. I'll I'll watch it because I love you specifically." And now I am glad to say I was completely wrong. I love it. Unironically, it has become uh, a show that I like on my own. And uh, I'm always singing its praises, spreading the good news. So if you too think you're too good for reality TV, guess what? You're not. Your reality TV is out there just waiting for you to appreciate how good it is.
0: Something I remember from my time in my master's degree in grad school, um, when I had classes with a friend of the show, Richard Gilmopolski, (laughs) a guy who I love very dearly, Uh, he would uh, a lot of times come to class and tell us that he was watching, you know, whatever trashy TV show. Uh, It's great because it gave me permission to not be too high-minded about myself. (laughs) (laughs) Not to take myself too seriously. Of course, I'm going to read a lot of French philosophy, but then you can stop and then go and you can go watch uh, Big Brother and Survivor and uh, every other bad show, so... This is your permission to do that. If you needed it, you probably don't. But just saying, it's it's here. Yeah, <laughs> it's right. here if you want it.
2: It's here if you want it, and uh, you might not even know that you want it. All right, let's talk about imperialism. Speaking of U.S. media that <laughs> that finds its way into other other countries, um, we talk on this podcast a lot about imperialism. Um, in fact, we've done a handful of essay or er, essays. Whoa, sometimes I feel that way. Uh, a handful of episodes on it in the past. And uh, we've talked about what Marx thinks about it, what Lenin thinks about it, what all your faves and people you don't like think about it. And I think it is something that at least I find myself thinking about a lot because it shows up in all these weird ways, imperialism, right? It shows up in theory, but it also shows up in the news or you kind of hear like a strange sort of like candid moment where a politician lets something out on TV. We'll talk about that in a minute. Um, But lots of kind of, I guess, excuses to think about imperialism. And I am constantly thinking about it, too, because when you're thinking about things like global solidarity, you can't really get around it. Right. So when we talk about things like U.S. hegemony or other Western meddling in nations around the planet, it can seem like sort of a big unstoppable system of oppression and degradation. And there's even a big kind of ideological term that dresses it up these days. Uh, People talk about defending a rules-based international order. And the question is always whose rules, which order, it looks like disorder to a lot of people, right? So the assumption is that uh, it's, it's maybe not the United States in particular that's pulling all the strings, but there's this global society that values some things over other things, right? Like there's this kind of value for law, value for rules, but in fact... Those rules and laws always come back to, uh, to defend capitalism against other stuff. And there's ways on the left that people talk about this that are helpful. There are also some other confusions around the left. It's, it's a contested term, imperialism, especially these days. Uh, and Christians also have a special interest in imperialism, talking about empire and all that kind of stuff. So we thought, why not take a minute this week? And come back to the heart of worship, (laughs) come back to the heart of this podcast and uh, and talk (laughs) about imperialism. We're going to get down to it. And it was inspired by one particular moment on TV that, Matt, maybe I'll let you uh, introduce and and talk about.
0: Yeah, for sure. Uh, If this podcast talks about, uh, you know, if there is a heart of worship of this podcast, it's talking about violence. It's talking about imperialism (laughs) Um, and And then also having really rough segues from talking about Big Brother to talking about whatever else is going on. (laughs) From Big Brother Um, to
2: the other Big Brother.
0: That's right. The Big Brother of uh, the rules-based international (laughs) order. Uh, So like you're saying, Dean, like capitalists do, you know, go through a lot of trouble to kind of like keep the illusion that there is no such thing as imperialism instead that they are just, you know, all players in a big global game of risk. There's this uh, there's an illusion where, uh, you know, the United States is not leading the world around by the nose. You know, there's all these other planetary governing bodies like the World Bank or the International Monetary Fund or, uh, you know, the uh, UN or, or whatever. Right. There's all of these kinds of things that exist in the world that try to direct us towards thinking that uh, the United States is just one country among many. And in, in a lot of ways, that's true. Uh, the U.S. is is one country among many, but you know it's uh, it's too far of a stretch to believe that like some countries don't have a bigger pull <laughs> over over the others in the world, or they that some countries don't set the rules where others have to follow. Um, so I think that we saw a little bit of this happen directly in the last week when um, everyone's least favorite person in the world, John Bolton, who is a former White House National Security Advisor and also a former U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations. Uh, he was being, he, he said some very goofy stuff. He looks um, like a Scooby Doo.
2: He, he also looks the part, I think.
0: <laughs> he does. He has a big mustache and uh, I think probably spends most of his day sitting in a big chair petting his cat, thinking about how he's going to overthrow, <laughs> I don't know. He's like you.
2: Lula in Brazil or whatever. <laughs> yeah, you, you take off the big gorilla mask at the end and there he is, John Bolton, the guy with glasses and big mustache who looks like a, like he should be, I don't know, wandering around the amusement
0: park. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, so John Bolton this past week, he was being interviewed by Jake Tapper. Um who cares about him? Anyways, uh Bolton was in a very roundabout way defending Trump about uh what has been going on during the January 6 hearings. So Jake Tapper starts asking Bolton some questions about whether or not he thinks like Donald Trump is like competent enough to pull off a coup, which is a very funny question to begin with. And um uh, Tapper says that you know you don't have to be you don't have to be a brilliant person to pull off a coup. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to overthrow a country, and like this is a very funny thing because John Bolton becomes like kind of incensed at it. Like he's like, wait a minute now, <laughs> kind of feeling like this might be like an insult to his own uh, his own intelligence because. Uh, As he reveals on TV, uh, John Bolton knows a thing or two about coups because he's actually done them, right? (laughs) So he says, like, you know, I wouldn't say that you don't have to be a genius because I've been a part of them. You have to be pretty competent. And it's like, (laughs) come on, man. (laughs) It's really, really embarrassing, I guess. A really embarrassing thing just to say. I mean, it's like um, it's silly that um, I mean, everyone knows that John Bolton is kind of um, I mean, he's an imperialist bag, right? He's been um, he's been doing this kind of thing for a long time. He was really involved in the in the attempted coup uh, with Juan Guaido in Venezuela. Um, so it's just like we, we know these things about him for sure. But then he goes just on TV just to say the quiet part loud or whatever. And it just seems like this uh, extremely silly moment on TV. But I guess what's interesting about Bolton's statement is that it reveals, I mean, what's true about the <laughs> rules-based international order, right? The truth is that it's like just a fabrication that people use to cover up old-fashioned imperialism um people come up with all kinds of uh this is like what Dean was saying a minute ago people come up with all kinds of ways to sort of dress up imperialism or uh uh, put forth new ideas about um how international order works and uh the ways that maybe governments are superseded by capital in, in their entirety which is an idea we'll talk about in a little bit but like it is at the end of the day i mean true in some ways but also drastically untrue in many others right so sure there are some big organizations like the imf or the world bank or whatever and they exist and they do things, and that's totally true. But it's also not like every country has the same access to mm-hmm. directing those organizations as the U.S. and its allies do, right? It's not like the U.S. and Venezuela or the U.S. and Cuba or the U.S. and you know, like Ecuador or whatever are on the same playing field uh, when it comes to the the UN or the IMF or or whatever. Um, so I think in light of all of this silliness and like um, media spectacle, we're going to talk about why it's actually really important to know some of the specifics about imperialism and how it works. And we're also going to kind of give some special space in this episode to talk about the ways that Christians have understood and like failed to understand imperialism and maybe like why it really matters that we understand it in more of a, like, a rigorous way rather than just sort of a rhetorically powerful way.
2: Yeah, exactly. And I think to one thing that maybe we can add in this episode that we haven't talked about as much in other episodes, although we have kind of addressed obliquely is really drilling into that idea of the rules based international order. What does it mean to use that kind of phrase in a world where the rules, the game is rigged, right? Like the order is is very obvious kind of who benefits from it. And the rules that apply in some countries don't apply in many others. So I think uh, it'll help us to maybe work backwards into this, into some of the theory here, starting with things like John Bolton. Um, and maybe I'll, I'll pick a couple, couple of other examples, too. Uh, the thing I always like to say, and what I used to say in a handful of like settings and stuff like that when we talk about imperialism is that you can have all the theory and you should have the theory, but it helps to have really specific examples, like to look at particular countries. And there are lots of historical examples, um, some extremely obvious and egregious, right? Like the U.S. funding the Contras, fighting the Sandinistas in Nicaragua or whatever, or, um, you know, Richard Nixon famously saying that after Allende was elected in Chile that he wanted to make the economy scream with uh, sanctions. You know, there's these really transparent Mm -hmm. kind of, ways that uh that coups and and uh that kind of thing that kind of imperialism is really on the nose but these days one thing that is true is uh that you you can't seem to do that as directly or at least it's not done as publicly and that gives the illusion that it's kind of not done at all that this was a 20th century a 19th century strategy of engaging in other countries by bullying them around more directly. But now, you know, imperialism is either more sophisticated or it's kind of like we don't really have imperialism anymore. We have soft power, you know, right. that's like a little gentler <laughs> or something like that. Maybe still bad, but um not the same. And I think it's important when we see examples like John Bolton saying something on TV like, oh, no, I've been part of a coup uh, to then remind ourselves that actually there is a whole sort of uh theory among real political actors who have more power than most of us that uh we are not out of the woods with those kinds of tactics and uh so i think a lot about bolton um for people who maybe haven't followed bolton and why would you (laughs) congratulations um he as matt said was uh working in the trump administration and um he was hired on in the middle of the administration. I forget which year, but he wasn't there in the very beginning. He was brought in, and he uh, right. he had a history already of doing a lot of dirty international politics stuff in the past uh, in Reagan's administration. And he uh, immediately went to work uh, creating a kind of rhetorical device that he called the Troika of Tyranny between Venezuela, Nicaragua, and Cuba. That These were the three kind of problem children of you know, U S paternalist interests and they needed to like whip them into shape or whatever. And, uh, mm-hmm. there's a whole Canadian piece of this too. Um, John Bolton found a super willing ally in Christopher Freeland in particular, who was not exactly his counterpart in Canada, but like effectively, I guess, um, cause the Canadian government is just different, but basically, yes. So there's kind of a lot of spillover effects. So you have John Bolton running around doing these things, right? Trying to like whip up a frenzy around these countries, Um, And in the case of Venezuela, uh, doing this bizarre strategy around Juan Guaido, if you ever want to read something really weird, um, Bolton put out a book about his time in the White House, and uh, it is very funny and like an extremely unreliable narrator. So, (laughs) you know, take it all with a grain of salt. But there's a great chapter in it about Venezuela. And you have to really read between the lines like Bolton is convinced that Cuba is like pulling all the strings in Venezuela as though they're the Soviet Union kind of like out there with their spies, like, you know, thwarting the U.S. at every turn, Um, which I'm sure Cuba has interest in in Venezuela. But like, I don't know, maybe I'm underestimating Cuba, but (laughs) probably probably not what (laughs) what Bolton thinks. Um, And uh, anyway, it's all very interesting to kind of read about some of the fractures in the White House around imperialism Uh, One thing that comes out in it is that like Bolton and some other people in the administration really wanted to go hard on Venezuela and they wanted to accomplish a coup like transparently like they he's he tells you all the calls he's making and the kind of pieces he's trying to get on the board and they fail in part because Donald Trump just like lost interest I guess (laughs) in Venezuela which uh, good for them. Um, I guess that is, uh, a, a strange kind of wrinkle in, uh, the divisions among the, among the ruling class, but I guess I'm, I'm on this, this tangent about Bolton, because when we think about specifics, it's helpful to be like, well, here's a person who was in a position of power who made an effort to pursue, uh, what, what some people might say is an outdated imperialist strategy. And maybe in some ways it's outdated insofar far as like Donald Trump didn't care about it. And that kind of changes the rules of the game, um, but nevertheless, mm-hmm. this is like a live discourse that's happening among the ruling elite still today in, you know, <laughs> in the early 21st century.
0: <laughs> it's true. And like I mean, like you said, there's a lot of people kind of caught up in it. It's not just uh, it's not just Bolton, but like other people, too. Um, it reminds me of this uh, article from the Monthly Review that John Bellamy Foster wrote, uh, I guess like about a year ago um, in 2021. This issue of the Monthly Review uh, has an essay in it called The New Cold War in China. And, and that one, John Bellamy Foster, he wrote it. And anyways, he's trying to parse out, you know, is the current situation or last summer's situation with China like a Cold War? Like, is that how you would kind of characterize it or is it something different? and uh the answer is really complicated because you know sometimes yes sometimes no in some ways uh the united states was like really willing to kind of like um go along and like uh partner with china on some things and in other pla- in other cases you know uh they aren't and it's really interesting because um uh john Bellamy foster he kind of zeroes in on this this rules-based order phrase that we were mentioning earlier and how it's uh you know kind of a, a cover to sort of cover over like what's actually happening And uh, in in the essay, he says this. He says that, as China's indicated, if the rules-based order is set by the U.S. alone, then it cannot be called international rules, but rather hegemonic rules. And if it refers to the rules set by a U.S. and a handful of other countries, then it cannot be called international rules either, but rather clique rules, which run counter to the principle of democracy and won't be accepted in the majority of countries in the world. And I think that that's actually kind of a helpful way to parse out what happens with imperialism. Because, you know, the... There's like a temptation just to be like well the United States is like the worst country It's like extremely strong and it can set all of these rules itself, but that's probably not exactly true, right? It's like, you know, the United States has a lot of sway over the ways that quote-unquote international rules are set But it's actually you know coalitions of sort of like Western governments, right? It's the United States. It's Europe. It's Canada Whatever these kinds of countries But I like the phrase click rules, right? It helps kind of make sense of of the ways that um, You know, it gives some texture even to the idea of, of imperialism, right? it uh imperialism can be like a, a complicated term and like it, what exactly it means and like what countries are always behind it is sometimes sort of hard for people to parse out because uh you have to follow international relations and you have to be like really well versed in that kind of thing in ways i definitely am not but anyways uh, i like the phrase click rules uh because it kind of helps us think through the ways that um uh you, you know like international relations and imperialism are both projects of power and not just like neutral sort of world mm-hmm. orders. Yeah, that's right. I mean, so I mentioned Canada was kind of
2: wrapped up in this John Bolton scheme. And I always find that a really instructive example, because at the time of Donald Trump being in office, you know, we have uh, Justin Trudeau here in Canada, a, a liberal party. Fidel Castro's Fidel Castro's son, that's right. <laughs> and, uh, you know, what's so interesting about it is for all their differences or difference in rhetoric or style or flavor or whatever um they did not really differ on, on issues of foreign policy uh which has not always been the case sometimes canada has been willing to sh- chart its own path including for instance uh, pierre trudeau justin's dad when he was prime minister uh he chose an independent stance toward cuba that fell out of favor with the united states um and good for them interesting thing cool thing uh, but uh, <laughs> yeah. not the kind of thing that uh, Justin Trudeau's um, administration is doing now. And one thing that's really fascinating is like Canada <laughs> had this desire, I think, to be seen as uh, as contributing to this international rules based order to, you know, Canada's a weird country. It's always kind of nervous about its place on the world stage. It seems to be anyway. And so, for example, with, you know, Bolton is out there trying to like stoke the fires of Guaido and so on. Uh, in Canada, they organized this thing called the Lima Group, which was named because they made it in Peru, in Lima, Peru. And it's like literally a handful of governments in Latin America plus Canada that are explicitly organizing around how to like oust uh, Maduro from power. And the kind of rhetoric that was always used to describe the Lima Group by Christopher Lind in particular um, who is responsible for a lot of these international diplo- diplomacy kind of things? Um, she would say that you know Maduro doesn't play by the rules of an international rules based order. But the wild thing is like the members of the Lima Group were people like Bolsonaro in Brazil, right, or like Duque in Colombia, uh, rulers who also you know even by liberal standards did not play by the rules of international <laughs> order, right? They like. Bolsonaro stole the election. He had to throw Lula in jail to win and was like trampling over the rights of all kinds of people to do it in uh, the same in Colombia. Duque was uh, doing all kinds of really awful stuff and backing off the peace process, which was a, uh, you know, based on a referendum and so on. So uh, it, it just kind of gives the lie, I guess, to um, these rules that are supposed to be out there. Uh, click rules is the right way to put it. Uh, Maduro doesn't fall into the clique. He's not willing to play by the rules of the US. I mean, love him or hate him. Love Venezuela or don't love it. Uh that's the, the problem. It's the problem is is it's yeah. not that people do or don't like him. I'm sure that privately people don't like Bolsonaro either, but he's willing to play by the rules. He'll he'll sit at your lunch table. And so, you know, they're fine to, like, invite him in. So it's important to see that how those rules play out and, and who they play out for.
0: I think that's right. I mean, you know, whatever. I mentioned China a minute ago, and now we're talking about Venezuela. And it's like, you know, we're not trying to, like, pass, pass judgment on these places necessarily. I mean, maybe Venezuela more than China. But, um, you know, you don't necessarily have to do that to kind of, like, see the sort of hypocrisy in the, in the click rules uh, of the world and maybe how they're just, like, I don't know they are extremely they're stemming from power not like actual rules based order (laughs) whatsoever um uh when you're talking through that whole situation in venezuela dean i mean here's a great example of it um this is kind of kicking up again too so it's in in the news headlines but um, let's see, Venezuela is a country, like we were talking about, that um, that John Bolton was involved in a coup, like, I guess loosely or maybe not loosely. I don't know exactly how involved he was. Some people have said maybe he's less involved than he says, but whatever. It doesn't matter <laughs> in one way or another he's involved. In the course of that coup, the, the plan was to get this other guy, Juan Guaido, to kind of like claim power and to be recognized as like the, the, the leader of Venezuela, right, on the, on the international stage. That's what the United States wanted. That's what... You know, the U.K. one and all these other countries. I mean, Canada as well. I don't want to forget Canada. Um, Anyways, but something that's really interesting is that, like, since then, um, that has actually had some really big material problems for Venezuela. Like, I mean, all kinds of, like, sanctions and stuff for sure. Um, And also a lot of other material problems on the ground. But one specifically very weird problem, the way that you can see the sort of click rules work out, is that there is $1.5 billion of Venezuelan gold stored at the Bank of England. (laughs) and and the the drama here is that um because of the dire financial straits of Venezuela um, Maduro wants the 1.5 billion dollars of gold which i think makes a lot of sense it's his gold and he wants it now um <laughs> But uh, the thing is, is that the UK is saying, sorry, you can't have this gold because we recognize Juan Guaido as like the leader of Venezuela. Right. So this is this is, a, I think, a great example, though, of the ways that like there's an orchestration between Western powers to um, squash people they don't like and <laughs> kind of I mean, kind of arbitrarily in some in, in, in a way of thinking. Um, It's interesting, though, because there's been sort of an ongoing legal battle for Venezuela to get this gold back. Um, But here's the here. Here's like a this is from Reuters that kind of encapsulates the situation. A long running legal battle between Venezuelan president Nicolas Maduro and opposition leader Juan Guaido over who should hold the key to more than one point five billion dollars of gold stored at the Bank of England resumed at the London High Court on Wednesday. So um, it's that was on July 13th, um, which is my birthday, which is a bad day (laughs) to do this. But anyways, it's fine. Um anyway so there's more than 1.5 billion dollars of Venezuelan gold uh in the the Bank of England and now the UK Supreme Court is trying to figure out like what they should do. And I guess like that's a bonkers situation, right? Why why does the UK Supreme Court have any say over what should happen to the gold of Venezuela? It's just like this completely strange um discussion. Like I don't know if if Dean you gave me $10 and then all of a sudden I said like, sorry, that's not your money anymore or whatever. I don't know. It's in my pocket so I can decide whether or not you get it back. I don't know. That would not make any sense. That's like some real, uh some real childish kind of stuff. Anyways, it's a great example though of how the, how the click yeah. works. Uh, some countries have, uh, have access to the like the inner rules of of the clique of international order and some do not
2: yeah there's a lot of other weird things that too like uh one court at some point the details are lost to me now but a court in the uk had ruled that uh the gold probably did belong to maduro or at least like maduro was the sort of constitutionally elected leader um but there was a recognition that the foreign policy of the government did not think that. And so there was this bizarre discrepancy between like the legal definition of ownership and like the political situation (laughs) involved. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. The whole thing is a mess, but it's, it's, uh, an illustrative example of why these things are messes, right? Um, maybe to just pick one last example, we can move into some other stuff, but, uh, the New York times recently put out that article about Haiti that was going around. And, um, If you haven't read it, I forget the title of it right now, but it's, I don't know, Google New York Times in Haiti. I'm sure you'll find it. It was everywhere. You know, it was like a story about Haiti. Why is Haiti a a kind of impoverished nation and it takes a long historical view and there are people have said there's all kinds of problems with it and that is true, but uh, it does rightly contextualize the recent history of Haiti in kind of, um, you know, against the backdrop of like. The interests of the United States, Canada, and France in particular, and and also the UN, I guess. And um, there is a pretty striking revelation in it where uh, I believe it's the French ambassador admits that one reason, one motivation for the coup, which he does describe as a coup... In Haiti against Aristide in 2004 was that Aristide was asking France to pay back the money that it took from Haiti when Haiti liberated itself in their, um, their rebellion and, uh, you know, adjusted for inflation and today's currency and so on, it would have been a lot of money. So Aristide was like, we're poor because we all the all of our like initial kind of finance and and economic base was sucked out right away. And then we never recovered and uh, we want it back. And the (laughs) that was a dangerous thing for France to hear, because guess what? Haiti's not the only place that probably wants money back from France. And uh, so that was like cited as a a direct sort of cause of uh, Aristide getting removed in 2004 by a coalition of the US, Canada, France, and the UN. So I think it's just important to kind of recognize that I think because we don't have Ronald Reagan running around doing whatever he's doing in Latin America and things are a little stickier now or something like that, there can be this temptation to assume that imperialism is over. And it's important not to do that, not to assume that.
0: So we've got China, Venezuela, Haiti, just to name a few examples. I mean, there's a bunch of others that we kind of talk about as well. I mean, Bolivia underwent a coup right. as well. That was, uh, you know, not uh, organically grown. I would say. So, I mean, there's there's tons of tons of stuff going on, but I think the the point's pretty clear, right? That there are, there is a there is an international order, but it is more like um, it's more like bullies at a high school lunch table <laughs> than it is uh, <laughs> adults doing global politics or something. We we need an adult. We do need an adult in the world, yeah, and it's not. The U.N., <laughs> I guess. Right, maybe the U.N. is the adult in, in the world, but uh, but the United States has not listened to them. So I guess what does it matter anyways? So there's this sort of like global order that's run by uh, a handful of like countries that do imperialist stuff. And we don't like it. That's all very clear at this point, I think. We've, this is well trod ground on this podcast. I think it's also uh, worth saying, too, though, that in the monthly review article that I was talking about earlier, the question that kind of emerged uh, out of the issue was like, you know, what kind of what kind of place does China or I mean, what, what kind of place does China kind of hold in the international order of the world now that it's sort of like um, it has quite a bit of, interna- uh, of economic power over like the whole supply chain? <laughs> you know, like there's a, there's a lot of ways that China exerts power uh, now in, in ways that it hadn't in the past. Right. Um, so a word that people use to kind of talk about this a little bit is is, uh, is the the phrase multipolar world, right? And this is an important phrase kind of moving forward because, I mean, it, it's probably true about China, but it's also true in different ways about other, you know, big countries too. But the idea is that like, you know, um, when it comes to imperialism, when it comes to ideas like empire, when it comes to like, you know, this like click rule, um, it, it's, it presumes that there are, you know, A handful of countries that are sort of digging in and crafting the world and the relations of power in such a way that they, you know, can't be toppled. They can't be overturned. No one kind of questioned them. Right. And that's kind of, you know, what things look like. That's a a unipolar world, uh, a a world where the power is held by a small group of people, a small clique. But the uh, the the concern, I think, of that that small clique of people is that there might be another country that um, becomes increasingly powerful or that can have some kind of sway that can kind of question that that unipolar uh, position of power. Um, it could swing the world away from, you know, the the concentration of power in the hands of a few, and maybe, you know, adding another seat at that table through one, one way or another towards something called a multipolar world. Um, and the question that I think um, people on the left, uh, whether they're Christian or not, have to deal with is, is that good? <laughs> is that different than empire? <laughs> I don't know. It's a great question. Um, you know, uh, last summer was a different time for sure and people were I think more concerned about China than they are now um, as sort of an economic power or something. I guess some people probably are still worried about China. but I think a lot of people have been asking this question about a multipolar world in relationship to mm-hmm. Russia um, given the Ukraine and whatnot. I think that's actually a really helpful way to think about the the difficulty and like sort of like scariness of maybe the the multipolar world because you know a unipolar world means that power is concentrated in the hands of a, a handful of people and you know that means that um uh, you know the the po- power in terms of like real military power or, like not just uh, the soft power of um you know the world bank or something which i think is also pretty brutal but that all that to say like um when a country like russia invades ukraine it demonstrates what might be a multipolar world but it also shows like the stakes of what a multipolar world is um, in in the end of this um, this essay from the Monthly Review, I was mentioning a few minutes ago that John Bellamy Foster wrote, he he explains though that like the um, the the danger of like a Cold War or the the danger of sort of an, another emerging power in the world that might question the uh, the quote unquote rules based order is that like there are material stakes right. There's no Cold War, he says, without a nuclear arms race to kind of go along with it. And um, in the case of China, that kind of works out differently because their their nuclear arsenal is far smaller than the United States and there's a whole thing going on there. But I think that is kind of something that's worth bringing up, right? Like with the, the breakup of like sort of unipolar imperialist power also brings all kinds of like military conflict and sort of scary stuff on that side of things, too.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's the the big sort of concern, right, is the the loss of power is always threatening. The loss of a monopoly of power is threatening. Um, the, the, the other backdrop of the unipolar conversation is the collapse of the Soviet Union, right? So you had a kind of struggle between the first and second world, as they said, and then the third world was kind of left to figure it out. Um, but, uh, with the second world being, um, at least ideologically broken up, um, with the collapse of the Soviet Union, the assumption was then you'd have this unipolar world led by the United States, which won the contest of ideology and, uh, you know, they were going to slowly remake the world in a, a capitalist image and and everything would get kind of sorted out. And that has turned out to not be the case because of the economic rise of not just China and Russia, but sometimes they're referred to as the BRICS countries like Brazil, Russia, India, China, and sometimes uh, yeah. South Africa. And the idea is that these are like emerging economies with lots of people actually more people population wise and that means potentially more consumers and more producers which is a big thing for the economy (laughs) if you have more of those two things you're gonna have a bigger economy over time and uh so the question is you know what does that mean for the the position of the u.s as a unipolar power does it mean that it doubles down on all of the uh the ways in which it exerts its power does it mean that it um you know, relents and tries to find more diplomatic ways of kind of accepting the inevitable and and sitting at the table. And I think what you see with like both Trump and Biden is a certain paranoia around the loss of that power. And it's a paranoia that can also get exploited by other bad actors in the world, too. Right. Like a multipolar world is in some ways advantageous. It's The U.S. probably shouldn't just have a blank check to do whatever it wants. Right. That has turned out to not be a good idea. Um, But at the same time, like, it's true that Vladimir Putin is not out there uh, saving the working class and, you know, representing a progressive (laughs) counterbalance in the world or something like that. Right. Um, There are people who do like 12 dimensional chess to try to figure out how like the very existence of Russia and Putin is kind of like a magic anti imperialist uh, position of the world. But uh, the reality is scarier. It's that like a multipolar world is just huge mess, a huge mess. <laughs> a huge mess. Mm-hmm. And the unipolar world was also a huge mess. So the, the question is kind of like, how do we figure out what's the logic underneath that mess? And uh, I think that's where actual talk about imperialism is really helpful, right? Because uh, imperialism involves both like recognizing who holds the keys, which still right now, I think is the US, right? Um, they have the, the most votes at the IMF and the World Bank. They have a significant veto power and other kinds of privileges at the United Nations, right? Um, they can really just call the shots. The, the U.S. dollar is still very strong. Um, so for like the, the immediate future, that is probably where it's at. Um, but if those kinds of relations shift over time, it's important to try to also figure out, well, what's the, the logic underneath that kind of motivates like empires struggling with one another, and I think that's at least where the Marxist tradition is really useful, because it tries to identify that primarily as a struggle between people trying to accumulate capital and exploit that capital. Right. And uh, there's lots of other things going on to other interests, nationalist interests, interests around people's perceived values and so on. So it's not just brute economics all the time, I don't think. Um, but at the end of the day, like it's true that when Russia invades Ukraine, um, there's a lot of economic advantages that come along with that. Uh, when the United States invades uh, Iraq, there's a lot of economic advantages that come along with that, right? Um, and uh, trying to figure out how to navigate a multipolar world also necessitates trying to figure out what are the the economic logics of something like imperialism.
0: It's true, you know, and it's also the case too. I mean, we we don't need to belabor the point any more than this, I guess. But like, there's also economic advantages for the U.S. when. Uh, Russia right. invades Ukraine right like it's extremely economically advantageous for um, arms right. dealers <laughs> and all, who are going to do a whole lot more business with the United States government now, right and, and paradoxically
2: um, too it advan- advantageous for a country like Venezuela right where now the United States is like oh no we need yeah, to yeah oil. we have to yeah. talk to them uh, after we tried for several years to stop talking to them so uh, lots of weird things that kind of happen when uh, empires start arguing
0: yeah, yeah. Well, like, when it comes to imperialism, I guess something that is really fascinating in the way that people think about it, though, is that, like, there's this sort of imaginary idea of, like, what the rules-based order looks like, even on the left. And, I mean, I'm sure that people who are secular leftists, <laughs> they, I'm sure they, they fall into this trap, too, but I think Christians are particularly bad. Like, Christians on the left are particularly bad at this. Like, um, whenever I think about like christian writing around imperialism i always think of i mean the word that comes to mind is the word that we've used a handful of times this episode already and it's empire right this is when uh christians love to throw this word out to kind of um refer to this big sort of like textureless oppressive force in the world that like necessarily is bad Mm -hmm. and i mean fair enough but I think uh, you know you get you get you get big end of history vibes from it, right? That um, that empire is this thing that exists in the world, um, and you know we'll use that phrase to critique it, um, and we'll say that we need to kind of stand against it. But um, you miss all of the nuance that we've been talking about when you do that, right? <laughs> the Christians are, I think, good at employing like uh, rhetorically radical uh, phrases like empire and and kind of using them to critique. Uh, the the existing order, but they're really bad, I think, at understanding, I mean, maybe like what's actually happening within uh, the, the systems that create empire mm-hmm. in the first place. Yeah.
2: I think this is also why I guess it's important to, <laughs> this, this is why it's important to understand like why uh, Venezuela or China or other countries are in the situations they're in, in, in particular ways. And again, it's, it's not to necessarily endorse every country that's having a problem or on the wrong side of imperialism or whatever, as, as guys say, say what you will about China. Uh, but it is to to right. say, you know, um, these things are very complicated. And if you can't figure out how they're complicated, you also are going to have a really hard time figuring out how to resist uh, the the ways that empire is conscripting you into its purposes. Right. That That's the big Christian worry is that Christians are giving over their faith in Christ or their faithfulness to Christ to um, faithfulness to empire. And I think that is a good worry. Um, but it is totally (laughs) empire isn't just like a competing idol. Like it's a thing, you know, like weirdly enough, uh, Dorothy day, who I think I always have a complicated relationship to. She is somebody who I think could kind of thread the needle. Okay. And I don't know if that comes from like her experience with Marxists and, and others, but, uh, She was a person who I think could recognize there is a spirit of empire and also the United States wants to destroy Nicaragua. (laughs) Right. Like uh, (laughs) it's important to like see those things together and try to figure out why, Um, because that also changes the way that you relate to it. Like if empire is just a spooky spiritual force that's out there um, made up of bad actors being bad people who like don't have the gospel in their heart or whatever, and they're trying to get the gospel out of your heart then you're always going to necessarily end up on kind of a pious solution, whether it's like organizing the perfect community that you can live in and kind of remain pure or making sure that you make all the right consumer choices or whatever it might be, or, or you go to church enough or, or whatever. Um, but if you think that empire is like, you know, a thing with discernible logic and uh, privileging particular countries, then you might instead organize, you know, a rally in solidarity with uh, the people of Cuba against the blockade of the United States because you recognize that that is a major uh, knock on effect of imperialism, right? So it's important, anyway, I guess, to uh, find a way to square that right Christian concern about how we're getting. Uh, sucked into some idolatrous relationship or something with also the material reality of of what that idolatry actually commits people to in a a, a, in a real way on the ground
0: yeah i think that's actually a really important point because uh, you know okay christians on the left who write about empire or something um along those lines at least i think that like you know they're they're doing something good i think it's great to mobilize your faith as, as and like find ways to sort of activate your faith tradition to make you think about the world in a different way. I think that's yeah. absolutely great. No argument here. But also there's like a way, though, that sometimes it can be self-defeating. Um, maybe in a lot of the ways you just said. Anyways, it makes me think of this. Um, there's a theologian named Walter Brueggemann who people know or they don't know. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know who people know or not. Anyways, uh, he wrote something called uh, Journey to the Common Good where he talks a little bit about this like um this idea of empire and this this way that i think is like both interesting and also problematic um in maybe a few different ways but anyways he's like in, in in the in the bit here he's like talking about the ways that the the Israelites already sort of a, uh, a difficult thing to kind of jump into but he's a theologian i guess so he's talking about the Israelites and how you know they they were de- delivered out of slavery delivered away from egypt and from pharaoh and all this kind of stuff right there's like this like m- this very liberative story in exodus and we all know it and love it and it's great um, but then there's like this, this interesting turn. This is a thing that I think a lot of sort of Christians on the left point out. And in fact, I think we've done this podcast before, but there's this turn where the people of Israel end up sort of like succumbing to the story of empire, like after having been delivered from it. Right. Um, you, you get it throughout the old Testament in different ways, um, with like King Solomon and, and that whole, that whole thing, right. Where, um, the Israelites are, are telling God, like we need a King and God's like, no, you don't. Um, but they they still kind of demand a king, anyways, right? And and Walter Brueggemann is arguing that like there's this there's this thing that happens, um, or maybe it's like a not not a thing not like a social phenomenon, but there's something that he's kind of locating in the text and and drawing it out. That there's this thing that he calls the royal consciousness, where um, people um you know they for some reason want that right you you want someone to like sort of rule over you you want the empire that kind of thing right you uh you're seduced by the idolatry of it and like there's something interesting about that i think and there's you know be wary of power is is something that um my nineteen year old Christian anarchist self would, <laughs> would definitely still want to say and I I'm still like here for it. But at the same time, they're like pathologizing the idea of empire to this like extremely spiritual level or something is to me seems kind of unhelpful <laughs> or like it just gets in your way of like really understanding what's happening in the world when you're constantly sort of like looking out for your own inner demons about like whether or not you yourself want to take up the royal consciousness of being like the youth group leader <laughs> or whatever. I don't know. <laughs> um, Christians, you know, um if nothing else are extremely good at pathologizing things, they ought not to pathologize. Um, but y- y- I guess what I'm trying to say is that uh, is, is that there's a sense in which like, Understanding empire as like a theological category or concept is like sometimes helpful and sometimes powerful. But if you overestimate it, if you over approximate that and like um, turn it into like an intrusive thought that you have, uh, it becomes very bad, (laughs) I guess, like anything.
2: Yeah, I I think it's also just that's what it comes down to, right? Does does the Christian commitment to think through empire as a category, does it deepen your engagement with the material world and like the complexities of it? in a way that can really become a a motor to engage those or does it pull you out of them right does it become a substitute for engaging them and I think that's the big question like for me I still think there's a lot of value in saying like Christianity has this anti imperialist pulse right it it centers around all kinds of um, ancient anti imperialist themes for sure. But also in a contemporary way, like if you care for the poor or, or solidarity, it's it, you tug on enough, enough threads, you're going to find yourself thinking about big geopolitical problems and uh, trying to figure out, is there something you can do about those? Um, something you can do to help people who are doing something about those, right? Uh, but again, if you're kind of like, if your imagination um, gets too, too big, <laughs> if you get lost in the imaginative symbolism of empire, which, you know, there are people whose whole careers are based on that, like uh, big pastors like Brian Zond or whatever, who the, the the kind of shtick is like pointing out that empire, you know, the Republicans and the Democrats are both part of it. And the key is to kind of uh, drop out. Right. Um, it's true, like we should drop out of empire, but we should do it in a way that like says how to do that <laughs> or like understands Uh, how you might do that and uh, also understands that that's not going to happen in your lifetime in a material way like you're you're stuck in it Um, and I think that's also important too to then go find maybe Christian voices that do pull those things together like one thing I've learned a lot from liberation theology I think is that uh, there are ways of doing this there are ways of saying there's a spiritual opposition to empire and that empire too has this kind of spirit to it, right? It's like there's something kinda spooky about it. There's a kind of like negative Holy Ghost thing about it or something in an, an antichrist uh involved. <laughs> I, I think like I'm I get it. I it's it's a vibe and it's real <laughs> for sure. Um, but, uh, that recognition should, uh, sort of lead you to identify, well, what are the particular mechanisms that by which that kind of spooky antichrist spirit is reorganizing the world in an evil way, right? That's like when you see like Camilo Torres in Colombia. uh, he's a guy who was also a sociologist and spent a lot of time trying to figure out why is it that Colombia's economy is dependent on the United States, right? Or like. Um, people like uh, Juan Segundo doing all kinds of work to figure out like what are the U.S. interests involved in a country like Chile and why? Like uh, it's important to to do that kind of more boring work sometimes um, in order to actually make the Christian commitment make sense in like a meaningful way.
0: Yeah, I think that's right, and you know that's like what I really admire about people like Jim Hodgson, yeah. or you know people that do that type of like solidarity work with the United Church or even like development and peace. I mean the you know. the the work that you do dean i think is really cool for that reason because you know out of that sense of wanting to resist empire right and to not be idolatrous and to like take the the call toward uh, you know the the social call that christianity gives you seriously right in in order to do all that like you have to kind of learn about other people's struggles and kind of figure out the ways that you are complicit (laughs) for better for worse than them i don't know i mean i'm not canadian um for sure and i'm not catholic either but you know i've I've seen like the stuff that the development piece of has written about mining in other countries and like the ways that it's negatively impacted those communities. And it's like, you know, I have to think like those are those are struggles like I have to necessarily be involved in. Or at least I have to be kind of aware of because, you know, mm-hmm. I'm I'm implicated whether I like it or not. So, I mean, at least Christianity gives you that um when it mobilizes the language of empire, it can push you in that direction. And I think that's a good impulse to follow.
2: Yeah, I think so too. And maybe that's what it comes down to for me anyway. Like uh, what I've appreciated most about development and peace in particular is, is what you're pulling out. Like the, the real kind of root of the way that we work is through those partnerships, relationships with people, you know, the parts of the world who are caring for the poor And uh, a lot of the mining stuff comes from like partners who are like, okay, you guys live in Canada. Um, You know, one thing that would really help us out is if you could do something about Canadian mining, because that is what is messing us up down here. And, uh, you know, that kind of like really simple relationship leads to then learning all kinds of stuff about like okay, there's a ton of mining happening in Canada uh, or, like, headquartered in Canada. It's all traded on the Toronto Stock Exchange. Like, these are the specific companies, the people who are involved in them. Here's the people actually organizing against them in my city, in my community. So, like, I guess I have to go talk to those people, right? (laughs) Like, uh, that kind of uh, initial Christian solidarity or moment of connection uh, leads you to some really complex kinds of organizing, some really complex studying. Like, I've learned more about whatever, tailing ponds and how the the stock market works in Canada than I guess I ever expected to. But it's because, like, I want to be accountable to those people who are on the other end of empire in a different part of the world, right? Otherwise, like, how can you say in good conscience that you're in solidarity with them? And it requires being committed to figuring out the nitty gritty of all that stuff. So I think, like, in Canada, mining is one of those big things, Right. I think in the US, there's lots of other things too. Uh, the arms industry, like you were saying earlier, Matt, that's like a huge one. I mean, how do Christians figure out all the uh, the interconnections of the arms industry and capital and, and how do people resist it? There, there's a long, proud Christian tradition of resisting that in some pretty important and uh, performative and effective ways. But, you know, it, it, it takes like being willing to uh, to map it all out, <laughs> to be like, I want to know specifically what the empire is up to so that I can resist it in a meaningful way. Uh, I think that is really the only kind of like Christian anti-imperialism or Christian concern about empire that's sort of worth the name.
0: Yeah, I agree. You know, I mean, there's, uh, there's a, a lot of Christians out there writing about empire and good for them, nothing wrong with that, and they should keep doing it. But I guess it just kind of uh, requires that you take that next step and and move past sort of like the prophetic renunciation and uh, towards like the even more prophetic work of organizing people,
2: (laughs) organizing people and reading a lot of books to do it effectively. Uh, thing that bothers me a lot <laughs> and some books I love to read and some books are extremely boring but I do feel like I have to learn them if I want to like figure out how to make a mining uh, official have a, a worse day than he would have otherwise
0: and that's true that's what we're after in the end we just want we just want these mining officials to have a bad day <laughs> and uh, for them to stop destroying people's communities that's it that's all we're asking that's
2: for that's um, so I guess you know at the end of the day I feel like most people who listen to this podcast probably live in the belly of some kind of empire, right? The U.S., Canada, the U.K. I think those are like the three places most people tune in from with the occasional folks who are tuning in elsewhere, which uh, hello, welcome, glad to have you. Uh, but uh, those three countries in particular are some of the worst offenders also for being um, on the side of imperialism. And I think that's the the big question is like, what does it mean for Christians Living in these countries, thinking about these things, using the the tradition of the left, trying to think politically about Christianity. What does it mean for us specifically in the states where we live to like intervene? You know, on particular industries, on particular actions that our our states take. Uh, that's the big challenge, and uh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how to address it other than to be like go find a bunch of other people who are trying to do it and like learn all that you can and just show up. <laughs> that's
1: yeah.
2: Also, maybe a vague appeal to action is probably not like that much of a better substitute than a vague appeal to Empire, but I do think that's where it starts. Uh, when, once you're in the thick of it, then uh, it's easier to figure it out.
0: Yeah, well, we got two vague appeals now, and that's better than one, <laughs> yeah. as they say.
2: <laughs> Thanks for listening to The Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash themagnificast you can join the discord community there if you donate it two bucks or more it's great it's fun there's a lot of recipes being shared today specifically and those have been fun to look at um lots of neat stuff we're reading a book about degrowth there pretty soon i think and uh it's good a lot of good folks our music is by amaria armstrong our outro is by the illogical spoon and we'll see you next week
1: Keep your hoods up And you stay up late In Jackson You keep your hoods up Well, you keep your hoods up And you stay up late Oh, don't mind A cold night But we might mind If you leave too soon So come on now It's still early Least I would else I...